We're glad to have you as we broadcast live from the Three Angels Church here in Newington, Connecticut. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Our message tonight is entitled, The Test of Purity. The Test of Purity. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Ask once again, Lord, that you just make me a nail on the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Lord, let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard tonight. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that in each church there are lessons for today. Pergamos has the lesson that we want to um, e extrapolate from tonight. And in this one, you find it says, one, these things say he which have the sharp sword with two edges. That is, speaking of Christ, the sharp sword is his word. The scripture says that the word of God cuts like a two-edged sword. Then he says, I know thy works. I know where you live. And then he says, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and has not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And he says it again. This is where Satan dwelt. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to, unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And here, Jesus is not shy to begin to speak to the church in rebuke. You know, let me say this. I don't have a lot of time tonight. I want a lot I want to get through. But it, it would be very easy to preach to young people and try to really preach sermons that are entertaining, that are simply kind of fluffy, make you feel good, reference Marvel comic books and, and DC and, and try and uh, make myself hip and, and, and as if I am cultured in the things of the world. But I want to submit to you that if I do that, I fail the, the, the charter that Christ has given me. You see, Jesus was never afraid to do what he does in Revelation 2 and verse 14. He says, I have a few things against thee. You've done some good things. You sit where Satan's seat is and you've held on to my name. Antipas uh, was martyred. But guess what? You're still not right. There is improvement that is needed. And he speaks about the doctrine of Balaam taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things offered, to sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And then, of course, he speaks about false doctrine in the terms of the Nicolaitans. And he says he hates those things. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 16 says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So it starts talking to them about Jesus being there with this sword. He says, if you do not repent, it is my word, the sword of my mouth that will come for you. How can the word of God come for you? Because you knew better, but you didn't do it. Verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna 
We'll give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. I, I, I won't even have time to break all of this down, but let me give you just this little bit here. Um, in verse 17, he says, if you overcome, and we're going to talk about sexual sin tonight. If you overcome, he says, I will give to you to eat of the hidden manna. Where was manna hidden? It was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant under the mercy seat. He says, I'll give you to eat of that manna. What does it represent? It represents the bread of life. He says, I will give you a, a white stone which speaks to purity and, and, and eternity, maybe even represents one of the stones that the priest would have on his vestiture. But I like the last part. He says, I will give you a new name written on that stone. And this third thing that Christ says he'll give you if you overcome is a name which no man knows except he that receives it. Remember that a name is character. That's why uh, Jacob becomes Israel and Abram becomes Abraham. It's a reflection of character. And there are others, uh, Saul becomes Paul. The Bible names change. When God says he's going to give you a new name, it is because in your overcoming, you have developed a new character, a pure character. Revelation even teaches us that God says he will write his name in our foreheads. We talked about that last night and the importance of the frontal lobe. Pergamum was one of the great cities of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And you can actually go and visit the ruins. Um, I found some interesting things as I was looking at this, but Pergamum sits here atop and was, the, was actually the Roman capital for all of uh, Asia Minor as the state that the Romans had set up there. One of the, a Roman king, a king died and all of this territory was given to the Roman Empire, and all of this was, became a part of the Roman Empire even before Jesus was ever born. But this was a place of great culture. The second largest library in antiquity of, the, of that ancient time sat in Pergamum. In fact, when Mark Antony went to marry Cleopatra, one of his wedding gifts to her was the library that was in Pergamum. They were so cultured that they had three great temples, one to Caesar, uh, uh, one to Athena, and one to Zeus. And it, the interesting thing here, of course, there was a lot of cultural trade and a lot of money, and, um, but it was, also, it, was, it was a seat of government and one of worship. So much so that when Jesus speaks through John the Revelator in, in, in Revelation chapter 2, he says that this is where Satan's seat is. Well, we know this is a model. And if you go to Berlin, you can actually go to the Museum of Pergamum and you can see uh, this altar, this giant set up in a, in, a, in a museum in Berlin. Ironically, the altar was finished in 1930 and it was one of the things that Hitler claimed as a source of power. Isn't that interesting? The very seat of Satan taken from Pergamum and put in Berlin came, the final museum where it sits to this day was built just in time. And some say Hitler even delivered the speech about the destruction of the Jews, the final solution from this seat. Was it not aptly named by Christ? Satan's seed. In fact, what they would do is they'd put a bull, which represented Zeus, a, a, a bronze bull on top of it. And this is how Antipas was killed. They would take you and they would stick you into the bull and they would, they, your head would come up towards the head of the bull. And then what they would do was they would light a fire underneath this bronze bull and slowly roast you to death. 
The bull was designed with, 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 with certain um, uh, functions in the head so that as the person being sacrificed slash being killed uh, was dying and screaming and moaning, it sounded as if the bull had come to life. Antipas was killed, martyred, because the, the, he was so powerful that he would, uh, according to tradition, he would cast out so many demons in Pergamum that the pagan priests became upset and, told, and, and said that something must be done with him. And so they took him, arrested him, and said, unless you sacrifice to the, uh, to the, to the statue, the idol of Caesar, you're going to be put to death. And he refused. Talking about overcoming now. Why Jesus calls this, this martyr by name. What tradition says is that even as he died in this bronze bull, Antipas was praying for the church in Pergamum. Jesus said, listen, even with all the victory that came with the martyr, he said, I have a few things against you. And one of them is that you hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat the things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Where is this story? I'm just going to read the story because we won't have time to dig into it deep. Numbers chapter 22 and verse 1. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on the side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And so what uh, Balak does is he goes and gets a false prophet by the name of Balaam. You know the story. And as Balaam knows he's not supposed to go and help him, even his donkey speaks to him. But when uh, Balaam gets there, he tries to curse Israel in order that Balak will be victorious against Israel. Look at one of the response. Three times he tries. I just have one of them here because it's too much to read all of them. But Numbers 23 and verse 20 and 21 says, Behold, I have received commandment to bless. This is what the false prophet says to Balak. And he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. There's, he says there's no sin in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. It not only does it prophesy of the Messiah, the shout of a king, but it says that in Israel there was no perversion. Israel was a pure nation, and as they were pure, sexually pure, there was protection over them, so much so that this false prophet could not curse them. But just a couple chapters later, look what happens. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat. And bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, which is the false god. The Bible says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Don't miss this, young people. They couldn't curse them. They couldn't beat them in war. But something happens to weaken them. And the Bible tells us that somehow they begin to fall in the area of sexual sin. 
Look what the Bible says elsewhere. Numbers 31.16 says, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So they, they went against them. It was a national sin because so many of them got involved with it. And they lured them away with appetite, food for the gods, and, and the sexual practices of how they worship these false gods. Started probably slowly with just an introduction by some of the men as they were working Women would come and just bring them some grapes and talk to them. And they, over time, they began to make a, 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 an alliance until finally they were invited to see how they worshiped. Come, our, we have a feast and, and you can worship. And, and men began to go. And over time, they were corrupted to the point where God was furious with them. And all of this happened, church, right when they were about to enter the promised land. Right as they were about to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land, this sin rose up, this, and then a plague rose up, and many of them were killed. Hosea 9 and verse 10 says it like this. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. 1 Corinthians 10, 8, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day, three and 20,000. The Bible says that somewhere between, there's 23,000 here, and it's recorded as 24,000 elsewhere, but thousands of them died because of this sin. And I want you to get that this is just as they were about to go in. Balaam told Balak, based on what we've read, he gave counsel on how to trip him up. And, I, and based on all you read, and as we go through this, you see, what he said was, listen, if you can't beat them with magic and the sorcery, and you can't beat them with war because they're protected, you can remove the protection from off of Israel by getting them into sexual sin. You can then get them to worship false gods. And that is how they got into trouble. Two questions. How did Satan get so many to fall before reaching the promised land? And two, is Satan using the same tactics today on God's last day remnant church? The answer to the second question is yes. In fact, there is a test of purity. As we go towards the end of time, the concept of love, the, the, the thought and desire for love is going to only increase. And we know that there's a science around love. There's actually three phases. I'll show it again in another slide. But you can see that over here on this side, the first phase of, is lust and passion. And this is where you see people and you just are so drawn, so attracted to them. Uh, they look so perfect to you, driven by the sex hormones, uh, by estrogen and testosterone. And this desire comes over you. And I'm going to show you why Satan has worked to even make your body work against you. Well, what happens is as you, as, you, as you think you love this person, as you get all these feelings for them, cortisol is released and love is stressful. So it's, it's exciting. You get adrenaline rushes and your heart flutters and, and your stomach butterflies turn. You think this must be real love. 
Why would I feel this way if it wasn't real love? But you don't realize that what is being engaged is the more primitive parts of the brain and not the frontal lobe that we talked about yesterday. In fact, as you move from the phase of lust and passion, you move to a phase over here called the attraction. Dopamine, which, which is a pleasure hormone, is kicks in, and serotonin, you, and even adrenaline from another angle. So you get these hormones over here that make you feel satisfied and feel pleasured. And what the devil does in this day and age is it's not enough that you just fall in love. You don't just fall in love. You fall into bed with that person. And now you get a very pointed release of dopamine, a rush of dopamine. The, most, the, the, the natural way that this chemical, this pleasure chemical in the brain, dopamine is released. If you want an artificial way to release it, people take cocaine and heroin. But naturally, sex releases the most dopamine. That's why people can become addicted to it. And so... As this rush happens, and now not only do you have this part of it working against you, the fact that you think you're in love, now you physically interact with the person and get this rush of dopamine. And you even get another chemical to release called oxytocin, which bonds you to the person. Now you connect that person's face, their pheromones, their smell with these pleasure, uh, the, these, these, these um, experiences of pleasure. And now your brain chemistry begins to sink just from seeing them. And this is why the scripture says when you, when you, when you get married, that the two become one flesh. The problem is that even if you're not married and you begin to behave like this, you start to think you're one flesh. God designed young people that when you go to get married, the two people should be, uh, should be like two white sheets is the way I always say it. But instead in our day and age, what happens is that the two people come together more like tapestries, each bringing a piece of all the people they've ever been with into the marriage bed and making marriage more difficult to be successful. Because what was supposed to happen, if you had done, if we do it the way God says do it, the first person you ever sleep with is your husband or wife on your, at your honeymoon. And if both of you have that first experience together, the dopamine that's released in that process, the oxytocin that's released, uh, the pheromones, it locks you, sinks you. So that the MRI studies, I'll show you some in a second, actually say that it actually makes it so that you only find that person attractive. But when we've been all around town with all kinds of people, we break the way that God designed to, to link a husband and wife. And so when you think you're in love and all of this stuff starts to happen, your amygdala turns off, which is the part of your brain that controls fear. The mid-temporal cortex, which controls negative emotions, so you don't feel like anything bad can happen. The frontal lobe that we talked about last night, which controls judgment, it is also turned off. This is why they say love is blind, because the reasoning center of the brain is turned off, and it is the lower passions that take over. There are more of some of these neurochemicals in the digestive tract than in the brain. So all of a sudden, you're feeling all this stuff in your body, and you stop thinking with the frontal lobe of the brain. Of course, what happens is three years, five years, two years, six months, sometimes a week later, you wake up and realize, who is this person I'm with that I don't even know because I didn't take the time to get to know them because I was so caught up in the emotion, caught up in the physiology 
of being intimate and sexual. I, I don't even know this person. Never had a real conversation. All of a sudden you wake up and say, who in the world did I marry? Or who have I spent the last five years with and never even married him? This is what Ellen White says. She says, uh, Letters to Young Lovers, page 36, Love is a sentiment so sacred, but few know what it is. It is a term used, but not understood. The warm glow of impulse, the fascination of one young person for another is not love. It does not deserve the name. True love has an intellectual basis, a deep, thorough knowledge of the object loved. And the problem today is people don't really know the other person. They know them intimately, sexually, physically, but do not know them uh, um, intellectually or spiritually or emotionally. And what you find is it doesn't matter how good looking that person is. At some point, you've got to connect on a deeper level. If looks were all that mattered, Hollywood would never have a divorce. Ellen White goes on to say, remember that impulse, that impulsive love is perfectly blind. It will as soon be placed on unworthy objects as worthy. Command such love to stand still and cool. The scripture says that two become one flesh. The lust phase, testosterone and estrogen, there's attraction, dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. Then there's attachment, oxytocin, and vasopressin. If you follow God's plan through these three steps, they lock you together. But if you don't follow God's plan, they will lock you to everyone you ever lay with. And the problem with that is now you've got the bits and pieces of the souls and even the spirits that all those people were ever affected by. Researcher Lucy Brown puts people who are madly in love into an MRI and asks, um, to show, and he shows them pictures of that person to show activity in the ventral tegmental area which is associated with euphoria um, and um, turning off the prefrontal cord. So she can actually show through the MRIs when people think they're in love and you show them a picture of the person who they are madly in love with, it shows you that the part of the brain that is supposed to function uh, perfectly isn't functioning at all when it comes to reasoning and thinking. And the, and the devil knows what he's doing. We found that this is, a, this, is a, this is a graph of the age of menarche. Menarche is the age at which girls begin to have their periods, to have menses. We're going to go deep here for a second. What the studies show is that, in fact, there was a time when this onset, and, and this is different countries, but you can see the onset started in the late teens on average. Now in America, uh, the average age of, of menarche overall is about 12 years of age. It used to be 16, 17, 18. Average age now is 12. For, for African-American girls, it's, it, in some studies, it's nine years of age. The problem with this is, if you remember, lust is driven by sex hormones. So once this starts to happen, there is a rise in that young person around um, desire, and sometimes they may not know what to do with it. The problem is if this happens and you start to have menses early and you then feed the flame of these hormones and emotion with what the world is selling, confusion is what naturally follows. 
And this, of course, is driven by a lot of things. Um, some say it's electric lights. Like if you turn lights on chickens all the time, they, 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 they make more eggs. So I, I said this one place I was, I was talking, I, I said that, and uh, a Jamaican brother stood up and said he's going to uh, have the electric company turn off the lights in his house. <laughs> but most people think it's actually a Western diet, which I don't have time to get into, but the increased fat that releases leptin, increased body fat that increases leptin release is what triggers menses to start. And over time, that's probably really what did it. And of course, the consumption of high quantities of dairy product, because of dairy products, cheese, milk, all those things, are really um, the, the, the milk byproduct of a pregnant cow, which is, which is a cow that is producing increasing amounts of estrogen during that pregnancy. So when you drink the milk, you get some of the cow's estrogen, increasing the risk of cancer and other things. But this is probably one of the side effects as well in our modern time. So what has happened because of all of this? Well, in 2018, STD cases hit, high, hit record high for the fifth year running. Five years in a row. In 2018, they um, hit record high for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. I'm, I don't know if they've released the 2019 data, but I can tell you that over time, more and more people are getting these diseases. I, I, I have many slides on this, talking about the thousands, the tens of thousands of people in America with herpes, the staggering rates of teen pregnancy, of abortions, all of these things tied back to sex. And these are the physical consequences. Because the truth of the matter is that up to 24,000 women a year are made infertile because of sexually transmitted diseases or infections. Ellen White says it like this, Letters to Young Lovers, page 63. A little time spent in sowing your wild oats, dear young friends, will produce a crop that will embitter your whole life. An hour of thoughtlessness, once yielding to temptation, may turn the whole current of your life in the wrong direction. You can have but one youth Make that useful when once you have passed over the ground, you can never return to rectify your mistakes. He who refuses to connect with God and puts himself in the way of temptation will surely fall. Look at this last statement, Ellen White says, God is testing every youth. There is a true purity test. Talked about these. I'll, I'll skip those. Skip those. This is all about more about the the, the 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 STDs. But there's a deeper level to this that I've hinted to already, and that is the spiritual aspect. You see, every act of sex in a marital bed, the way God says do it, is a recognition of God's original plan. Only two institutions were created, um, were were instituted before the fall, before man sinned: the Sabbath and marriage. So when we do things the way God says do, just like keeping the Sabbath, we honor God. And in a way, we worship God by, by doing things the way he says. In those cases, the angels do not need to hide their face. And you can pray in the demons, not into the room. But when you do things the way the world says do it, the enemy has access to you. You let down your guard. And just as Israel, right about to cross the promised land, sinned at Baal Peor by attaching themselves uh, sexually to those who would lead them to worship false gods. It removed the protection from off of Israel. If you are 
in this day and age involved in sexual sin, the protection that God has for you will be removed. So what does the devil do? Well, he works very hard to get you to see life frivolously. He wants you to think of it as something passing. He was in one of our sermons not too long ago, but one of the things the author of an article on this that said, that, that, talking about all these movies said is, notice most of these, uh, the whole romance, everything stops before marriage. Nobody, it stops at marriage or, or before marriage. Sex is something you use to get what you want, and they brag about how many people they sleep with, or, 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 or if they've gone to, uh, more than a week or two without it, they, they act as if some horrible thing has happened to them, training the minds of young people to think that sex is some casual, simple thing, when in fact it is a deep, emotional, psychological thing. And that's not what comes from the church, but even many secular people in psychology and in therapy talk about the fact that there is great emotional damage done when people are not ready for intimacy and walk into it. Impact of films changes in young people's attitudes after watching a movie. I, I quoted this one last night. A 2012 study, this study published in Psychological Science, found that the more teens were exposed to sexual content in movies, the earlier they started having sex and the likelier they were to have casual, unprotected sex. Just by watching, and again, this is it's not a Christian site. This one is from Association for Psychological Science. Exposure to sexual content in popular movies predicts sexual behavior in adolescence. Across all age groups, teens who saw the most sex on television were twice as likely to initiate intercourse within the next year as those who saw the least. Not, not among those who saw none, among those who saw the least. This is a statement. If the devil is working literally through the physiological changes hormonally in young people. And then you bathe their minds with images and concepts and songs. I don't even get into the music and how the music affects the mind. And all of this pushes you to think of sex as just some, some exercise in pleasure, something that you can do and walk away from and it not impact you the rest of your life. This is what the devil wants you to think. Because then he's got you like he had Israel at Baal Peor. Technology helps. I won't get into this too much, but they have apps that even help you do all of this kind of stuff. Um, and of course, then they are pouring pornography on young people. I've done purity retreats um, in Florida and other places. Um, young people come up and talk about the amount of time and energy wasted because they are addicted to pornography. And there's a movement now among young men who came out of the last couple decades where because of cell phones and iPads, they could secretly, quietly, privately, um, discreetly look at pornography even when their parents thought they were doing their homework. And these young men whose minds have been basically bathed in pornography are, as adults now have come out and said, listen, we were traumatized. Many of them cannot have a normal uh, a physical intimate relationship with a woman like, like their wife because their fantasy minds have been distorted. The common normal just doesn't work. Pornography teaches you to be selfish, to be the center of everything, and it, 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 it destroys what God had designed. Binds you up. And remember what Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman and lusts after in his heart, he has committed adultery with her already. This is why pornography is sin. 
But the studies show that pornography affects the brain as well. The hypothalamus also activates the testes to secrete testosterone when you're watching what they call SEM, which is sexually explicit material. Uh, it crafts a brain that is con constantly generating testosterone and heightened sexual desire. Look at what this, this secular author says. Instead of allowing boys to focus on school, sports, and music, sexually explicit material causes a ramped up sex drive where their minds are inundated with sexual thoughts. How many young men will not reach their potential because they became addicted to this stuff? Not just young men anymore, even young women. Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says it like this, Satan well knows the material with which he has to deal in the human heart. He knows, for he has studied with fiendish intensity for thousands of years the points most easily assailed in every character. And through successive generations, he has wrought to overthrow the strongest men, princes in Israel, by the same temptations that were so successful at Baal Peor. All along through the ages, there are strewn wrecks of character that have been stranded upon the rocks of sensual indulgence. As we approach the close of time, as the people of God stand upon the borders of the heavenly Canaan, Satan will, as of old, redouble his efforts to prevent them from entering the goodly land. He lays his snares for every soul by worldly friendships, by the charms of beauty, by pleasure-seeking, mirth, feasting, or the wine cup. He tempts the violation of the seventh commandment. Sensual indulgence weakens the mind and debases the soul. The moral and intellectual powers are benumbed and paralyzed by the gratification of the animal propensities. And it is impossible for the slave of passion to realize the sacred obligation of the law of God. To appreciate the atonement or to place a right value upon the soul. Remember, we talked about the seal of God being a, a sign of redemption, a sign of obedience, because you not only intellectually understand the truth, you spiritually understand it. And the, the, the frontal lobe, when, you, when it's going to be sealed, is one that understands its own value. When you are promiscuous sexually or get caught up in sexual sin, you begin to devalue yourself. And if you devalue yourself, you don't see the value in the sacrifice of Christ anymore. So you don't understand how powerful the redemption that was wrought for you was. The law of God does not, is not important because if you break one law, the scripture says, you break them all. So now you begin to separate. Sin begins to separate you from God. You begin to have distance. Difficult to come and sit in church and hear people praise a God who you are secretly living in rebellion against. Ellen White goes on to say, goodness, purity, and truth reverence for God and love for sacred things, all those holy affections and noble desires that link men with the heavenly world are consumed with the fires of lust. The soul becomes a blackened and desolate waste, the habitation of the evil spirits and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Beings formed in the image of God are dragged down to a level with brutes. She says, near the close of Earth's history, Satan will work with all his powers, 
in the same manner and with the same temptations wherewith he tempted ancient Israel just before entering the land of promise. She goes on and says, and men in responsible positions, teaching the claims of God, of God's law, whose mouths are filled with arguments in vindication of his law, against which Satan has made such a raid. Over such he sets his hellish powers and his agencies at work and overthrows them upon the weak points in their character. Knowing that he who offends in one point is guilty of all, thus obtaining complete mastery over the entire man. How do you gain complete mastery over the entire man? Through sexual sin. Because the Bible teaches that sexual sin, fornication, is the only sin you commit and you do it with your entire body. Mind, soul, body, and conscience are involved in the ruin. If he be a messenger of righteousness and has had great light, or if the Lord has used him as a special worker in the cause of truth, then how great is the triumph of Satan, how he exalts, how God is dishonored. But I want to submit to you that we are again at the promised land. Jesus is about to return. If there was ever a time to double down and focus on being committed to him. Now is that time. Paul says in Romans 13, uh, 11 and 12, and at that time, uh, and, and that knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Paul is speaking to the urgency of the soon coming of Christ. He says then, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. He says, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. He says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But look at verse 14. Paul says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Paul says, time is running out. Do not make space for lust. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the secret to overcoming sin isn't to focus on sin. I, I, I say this all the time. I get it from um, Morris Venden's uh, um, um, devotional that I love to read. I do it every few years, uh, Faith That Works. And on one day, towards the middle end of the year, Pastor Venden makes the point that as long as we are staring at our sin and trying to grit our teeth and beat our sin, we will fail. You see, Spirit of Prophecy says, by beholding, we become changed. So if all you do is focus on your sins and on your weakness, if you just keep re re rehearsing that in your mind, they will bind you up. Pastor Venden says the secret is to turn your eyes and look to Christ. Rather than studying your sins, study his life, study his righteousness, study his perfection, and you will naturally begin to change. By beholding, you will be changed. That's why that old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'll finish with 
one of my favorite passages from Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And when you, when you read this, you start to say, mercy, Lord. Who then is going to be saved? How, Lord, if, I, if, I, if, if many of us even look at our own past, how, Lord, will I make it in if none of these folk are going to get into the promised land? Paul finishes with verse 11. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Paul says, however you may have lived, you don't have to stay that way. You can be washed in the blood of the lamb. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. And this can all be done in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. If you allow God to work on you, invite in his Holy Spirit. I don't care how dark your past, he will bring light to your life. My Bible tells me that he will take your sin and he'll cast it into the depths of the sea so that you remember your sin no more. He will remember it no more. God will forget your sin. Too many of us go get a deep water boat and try and scuba dive back to what God has forgotten. Young people, I don't care how many times you failed. I don't care how deeply you failed. The blood of Jesus Christ still washes. It still cleanses. Many of us will take our clothes and throw it in the washing machine and pour Tide in there. We turn on the washing machine, we walk away. We have faith that Tide will clean our clothes. We don't sit there and watch it to make sure it's getting clean. Let me tell you something. Some of us have more faith in Tide and Clorox than we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. If his blood is applied to your life, it will work 100% of the time. And somebody out there is struggling with some of these sins and you think you can't gain victory. I have been sent to tell you that the power of God can still manifest and unfold. And just like that martyr, uh, the great martyr of, the, of Pergamum, just as he was able to stand for God then, so much so that when Jesus was speaking to John the Revelator a few years after on, uh, on Patmos, it was after that that he spoke to him. He mentions him by name. Some of you, God has a plan for you. And that's why Satan is working so hard to distract and destroy you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the power of your blood, for the love of the Father in sending the Son for the power of victory that comes in believing and knowing Christ Jesus. Lord, there's a young person out there who's been struggling with this. They've been affected by this. They've been traumatized by this issue. Lord, I pray that your blood would reach them now, that your Holy Spirit would comfort them now, 
that they would understand that victory can be theirs and that they are valuable. In fact, they are priceless in your eyes. Help them to know that they can be restored, redeemed, and Lord, that you still have a calling on their life. Bless that young person. Help them to know you more than they know anyone else. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.